Hello, hello. Welcome to my reinvented podcast, Taboo, where we talk about all the things people are afraid to talk about. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm probably going to talk about it. Life is too short for ambiguity. So thank you for listening, and here we go. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Taboo. I'm very excited to announce we have a very special guest, Rudy Releal, here. Rudy received his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Philosophy, as well as his Master of Arts in Political Science from Florida International University. Rudy is a first-generation Cuban-American who emigrated to the U.S. at seven years old, born in Cuba, and raised in Miami, Florida. Rudy's research interests fall within a critical theory approach, concentrating on a cross-disciplinary framework in understanding the effects of capitalism through climate change and psychological pathologies. In addition, the theoretical traditions of psychoanalysis, world ecology, eco-psychology, and non-Indigenous decolonial praxis are particular frameworks that he uses to complement his current research on eco-anxiety and neurosis. So without further ado, I will bring him on and he will tell you what all those fancy words mean. Hi, so yeah, the, uh, the fancy words just means that uh, I look at uh, different lenses of how to see the world um, to build a bigger picture. Um, a lot of those perspectives um, definitely talk about uh, a point of view uh, that takes into account uh, uh, marginalized perspectives, uh, points of views that are necessarily uh, given the light of day in most uh, conversations and in most spaces. Uh, so those are the uh, the orientations in which I'm coming from, and, and you'll see once we start talking that uh, different points of views uh, definitely demonstrate uh, a position that, uh, for example, climate change isn't necessarily just uh, something that's now developing today. It's something that's been happening to indigenous people, uh, to, uh, to the peoples of Africa, to those who have been colonized etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh thank you so much for inviting me in. thank you for sharing that would you be able to explain in a little bit more detail how you got into studying this kind of content as your phd dissertation yeah so i guess i can start with my influences um so when i first started you know thinking about doing a phd and uh, uh starting to be an academic I was second year of my undergraduate degree, um, and I I wasn't a very good student uh, before then, um, so I didn't think that it, you know an education would have been the background for me. I thought I was going to do law and make a lot of money, uh, but what happened was is that you know I had uh, good mentors and I got lucky, met the right people. And they inspired me uh, to take a chance on myself and and try to do something that's uh, that's worthwhile, um, and not necessarily for the for the glory or or for the financial wealth, but uh, to better myself and to better the human race. And, and that was uh, that was to me a, a principle that spoke to me um, that had never happened to me before, especially in high school, middle school, and elementary. Uh, I've always had to play the catch-up game, and I've and I've been doing that my whole life. But uh, 
I've been learning to uh, take in stride difficulty and struggle as something to learn from and grow from as well. So That's beautiful. And how do you think that those experiences and influences that you had growing up led you into this specific PhD that you're doing with the eco-neuroses and the eco-anxiety? Yeah, uh, I've always thought, you know, understanding the human mind uh, was an advantage uh, specifically for myself so that I could understand myself so that I could be a better person uh, to interact with people and, and also trying to understand the psychology of others as well. Um, so yeah, that's, I lost my train of thought, but yeah, that was what I was thinking uh, as you asked me that question. Okay. And would you be able to describe in a little bit more detail for people who may not be familiar with that topic, what does eco-anxiety and eco-neurosis really mean and where does the origin of those terms come from? Yeah, so the origin of eco-neurosis is actually uh, a, a, a perspective that's looking at uh, the connections between uh, the psychological and the environmental impacts of what's going on right now in a current climate crisis, right? So climate change is creating these anxious motivations or these anxious emotions that are turning uh, human beings and ha they're having these psychological impacts that we're studying now and observing. And what they're saying is, is that uh, there's an impending doom or this fear of an impending doom, right? This worry of an impending doom, something that's future oriented, that in a, in, a, in a sense is creating panic, right? And also people are afraid to have children. There's all these uh, lifestyle choices that new generations are thinking about that older generations didn't. And with that, you get these, this like eco-anxiety, climate anxiety, they have different names, but I'm calling it eco-neurosis because they're all a set of different emotions that are a reaction to discomforts that are appearing based on these wild uh, uh, climate change uh, events that we're seeing, right? Um, and because of that, there's uh, there's this whole study being done to understand uh, what these new ecological emotions are doing to us. And you shared something that was really interesting. You said that this is a phenomenon that we're seeing now that we weren't seeing previously with the older generations. Do you want to touch a little bit on why you think that is? Yeah. Well, I would say just in... For older generations, uh, the fear of, of the climate changing at such a rapid pace uh, wasn't in the purview of the media. It wasn't in the purview of our minds. It wasn't in the purview of our conversations. Um, it wasn't a thing uh, that was given a lot of attention. Um, the I would say climate change began to be an impactful topic of conversation around the 90s, late 80s minimum, but before then, uh, it was still amongst, you know, climate scientists in the 70s, for example, 
and also a lot of academic circles, but not within, uh, you know, conversations that you would have at, you know, dinner tables or with your friends. Uh, it was mostly something that was being studied by experts, right, and researchers. Okay. And what do you think would be the correlation between us constantly talking about that nowadays? In what ways is that constant subject of conversation creating this eco-anxiety and this eco-neurosis? And what do you think might be ways that we could mitigate that psychological, almost like duress that we're constantly under? Yeah, so eco-anxiety and, and now what I'm calling eco-neuroses uh, is a new uh, is a new phenomenon that we're looking at. It might not necessarily be new in it in and of itself, because anxiety has always been a thing within society. But the way that it's popping up or the way that it's dynamically being looked at with this connection to the ecological crisis um, is a new development. Um, and that development is now being taken seriously by uh by our uh, psychological circles. So you have the American Psychological Association and clinical psychologists are now looking at the behavioral effects of what these uh, you know, emotion, states of emotions are doing to us and how we can create mitigations so that we can treat uh, these, uh, these effects, right? These, these symptoms, but some of the uh, some of the mitigations, for example, or the, the treatments are, you know, going out and having nature walks and and trying to work with your community so you can pick up plastic bags and and recycling and and a lot of these well-intentioned uh, positions that I think have at least individually have a short-term treatability, but it doesn't actually treat the root cause of the problem. Mm, that's so interesting. Uh, as you know, that I was working in medicine, and that was my biggest gripe with our current Western healthcare system. We kind of temporarily put band-aids on things, and we fix the symptoms of the problem, but we're not fixing the actual root of the problem. For example, like when you see somebody with anxiety who's constantly in a state of worry or panic, instead of questioning like, okay, why are they thinking this way? And how can we reframe their thought structure to prevent this from continuing to recur? We kind of will just give them anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and things like that to just calm them down. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that as it relates to your studies. Yeah, so I think part of the problem is that this is the way which we've always been doing things like we have we kind of have crutches and our crutches is to treat things so we provide to people this illusion that we're doing something about the problem uh but while i think you know individual recourses for stop gaps are important we also need to walk and chew gum at the same time we should be treating clinically uh these you know, these very discomforting emotions, but at the same time, we can't just hang our heads and saying like, oh, we're treating it. This is the right way to go about this. This is the only approach we can use to actually get rid of the problem. We, what we need to do is take more of a, of a historical, structural, big picture uh, point of view and try to make uh, 
bigger decisions than just these very individualized and mitigated uh, positions that are only treating spots instead of the larger picture, right? That is beautiful. And I totally agree with that. For the purposes of our audience, would you be able to give a little bit of a specific example as to how you could extrapolate that idea from one individual to something more towards the collective? Yeah. Uh, so kind of like what I mentioned before, the, you know, the individualized treatments are, you know, from this bottom up perspective. Yeah. Like clinical psychologists are right. Uh, if human beings feel disconnected, right. Uh, a lot of this have to, has to do with this kind of alienation uh, from our sense of place, from our sense of selves, from our sense of nature, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of that has to do with this, this, this lack of connection. Um, and what we need to do is connect more with ourselves. And by doing that, you know, we can also make the, make the argument that we should be connecting more with nature. And one of those things from a bottom-up perspective is, yeah, go out on nature walks. Uh, yeah, go clean up your local beach. Uh, yeah, you know, go, go and have uh, a mindfulness walk or, or uh, what is it, go out and work out outside somewhere like you know it depends on what kind of activity you're trying to have with nature but there's also this other element that gets completely ignored which is well how do we collectively as our structures our political structures our organizational structures our societal and cultural structures how do we use these things to create long-lasting effects right long-lasting change because that that's what we don't focus on we're only thinking from change now and not thinking about change in the future um, and that's been the status quo of how we look at things how we look at problems so problem solving ideas are always in the present now not thinking you know 5 10 15 20 years from now um and that's something that, you know, we, we need to reckon with. We need to look at how we can transform our, our organizational structures, like, for example, elections or uh, thinking about how we can use our communities, like larger sects of communities and our community leaders, for example, uh, to help us better connect with ourselves uh, and with others uh, so that we can tackle bigger problems like climate change. Like we need the whole world. This isn't just a nation state issue or a local a local issue. This is a human issue, right? This is uh, something that as, as a species we need to look at. And obviously there's a lot of structural impediments that exist to be able to create those solutions. But we at least need to start having the conversation for now. Right, which I think is something that we're starting to notice as we start seeing these young activists like Greta Thunberg and all of these young people that prehistorically we wouldn't have seen people of that age coming to speak at all of these conferences and UN climate change and events like that. But I wanted to go back to what you were saying about how we need to be more connected because in today's society, it feels like we are so connected. Everyone's always plugged in the virtual web is at your fingertips and you can text or call or direct message anybody you want on multiple platforms. 
So can you speak a little bit more about what you meant when you said that? Yes. I think part of it has to do with having the world at our fingertips, right? Or having this illusion that the world is at our fingertips and we can just easily access everything. Um, and it's that that point of view of instant gratification with technology specifically that I think has created this mental barrier of how we can imagine a world different to the one that we have now. Uh, because the machines are doing a lot of the work for us and there are there are parts of our minds that have been ossified, right? That, that we no longer use. Uh, for example, experiencing struggle uh, as a way to transform ourselves isn't something that is advertised on, you know, on the, uh, the iOS apps. The iOS apps are trying to do the exact opposite of that. They're trying to give you everything without experiencing any discomfort whatsoever. So it's kind of interesting because it's, it's a paradoxical dynamic, right? Like we're talking about, uh, we're talking about things that are, uh, that, that are made of uh, discomforts, right? Like the, the econeurosis, for example, um, th these things come about because they're discomforts, but there's also levels to, what it means to experience discomfort, right? What it means to experience struggle. And some of these struggles can be, if applied in the right way, they can be pressure points to help us to overcome specific challenges. And the problem is, is that we are afraid of any kind of struggle, any kind of discomfort, any kind of uh, uh, pressure, right? Any kind of pressure that is applied to us we tend to run away from it because our technology, our society, the way we look at the world has told us that pressure, discomfort, uh, any kind of emotions that are negative are something that we should run away from, right? Instead, what we need to do is create a reorientation to say that, no, 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 some of these discomforts, some of these emotions, some of these pressure points are actually a good thing. It's good that we have insecurity but insecurity applied in a specific context and the context is how do we use this insecurity to create cures to have a panacea to provide solutions because without struggle without discomfort we don't really grow we tend to you know stagnate and stay the same yeah and i think a great example of what you're talking about can be seen on social media discussions when you go into the comment section, you see these like quote unquote trolls and they write these comments and get instantly blocked. And you have people who no longer know how to have an engaging, respectful conversation where they can politely agree to disagree and hear the other person's perspective. And so being able to sit through that discomfort of, hmm, this person doesn't think the same way that I do, but that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. We've lost that art of gracefully communicating our thoughts and our ideologies without completely shitting on someone else's. Right, right. Uh, and that I think that has to do with the mediums we're using to engage with others. And, you know, the mediums of these social media apps are stereotyping and creating cookie cutter pictures of what dynamic 
human beings look like, right? People who are more than just what they're presented as on, on an application. And to that effect, there's, uh, there's this like dehumanization, there's this disconnection, right? That's going on. Um, that doesn't help us to connect at all. It actually does the exact opposite where we feel more divided. We feel more separated. We feel more atomized from each other that we're all living in these, you know, these silos of different islands when we're actually living in a world that's interconnected, very fragile and dynamic, right? There's a dynamism in everything and in people. And we've lost sight of that. We've almost, you know, created this, uh, this filtering or this, this hole that we've created. We're seeing people through this filter to the point where uh, we no longer see the vibrancy and the colors and we only get to see whatever we want, uh, whatever we want to see, whatever we've programmed ourselves to see, right? And I think that's, that's, that's one of the biggest problems about the way we're filtering ourselves through the use of technology. So I have an interesting question for you. It's almost like yeah. the, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you think that this use and this perpetuation of the internet, the way that we're using it has created the individualistic society that we live in? Or do you think that we were originally individualistic and we've just continued to use social media in this way? Yeah, uh, the individualistic ethos has existed, you know, post-World War II. Like in the 1950s, it took off. Um, and it only got exacerbated from then on out. So every new piece of technology that we've created has only, you know, uh, amplified that ethos. It's, it's all it's done is that it's made it worse and worse and worse to the point where we are now, um, where we're, you know, uh, we're swiping right and left, trying <laughs> to find our future partners, right? Like that's, that's what we're, that's where we've ended up right? That's how we've developed um, since, and we have no reins for this. There's no, there's no one telling us like, hey, you're going the wrong way, right? Come back. And we're losing our sense of community, especially in, right, 21st century Western, uh, Western countries that are in the first world. Uh, that's, that's like the, the main, the main ideological glasses that we all see the world through, right? Like, especially uh, this interconnected world, like talking about paradoxes again, in an interconnected world that we've created where the whole world is connected. Like if, you know, if, if China is experiencing economic depression, we're gonna eventually feel it here uh, through financial markets. But the problem is as we're more connected economically, we're also more disconnected socially and spiritually. And psychologically, and that and that and that has, you know, very specific reverberating effects that we're experiencing now as we're talking about technology. Okay, yeah, that's some deep stuff you just mentioned. If you want to talk about how you've kind of used the, the your own advice, how would you have? How would you describe to your younger self ways that they would best be able to? mitigate this and be more connected, be more genuine, have more substantial conversations and create that sense of community with people? Yeah, so the literatures that I read, you know, give me this, 
underlying message, right? The message is uh, there's historical development going on way before you were born. There were, there's this world um, that is doing its things. Society is also doing its things and you just get introduced to all this. Um, what you can do within uh, within that society, right? Because there are levels of toxicity, levels of impediments. I'm not this human being that has superpowers and I could just change everything by just thinking it, right? Um, so there's almost like this middle way where it's understanding from one point of view or from at the one hand, right? You have structural impediments created historically through society um, where you don't get to choose, you know, the democratic elections that you're experienced in, or you don't get to choose uh, the political organizations that, that exist or the institutions that exist. You just have to work with what is there. And then there's your, your personal philosophy, your personal take on life. And there's, and there's like this, uh, there's this, this, there's middle ground there where you, you can make choices for yourself, but you won't be able to see what the best what the best version of yourself can look like because there are these uh there are these larger ecosystems at work uh that come at a collective cost right i individually can't change the co the the collective decisions that have been made for me or you but what i can do is work as much as possible to work within that collective ecosystem so that I can make the best personal decisions for myself. Um, and that's something that we kind of, it's, it's like having one eye on, on the problem and then one eye on, well, the, obviously the problem is bigger than me, but what can I do within the problem so that I can make life decisions that are healthy and also healthy for the people around me? Yeah, that's so beautiful. Would you want to share with people what life choices you made that led you to live on this middle ground that you're walking? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a tough road. <laughs> it's a tough road <laughs> to being a good person. Uh, yeah, the uh, the actions. Uh, first of all, I'll just start with consistency. Like trying to be a consistent human being is some of the hardest stuff that you can do, especially in the world that we live in, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of change. Um, and from one day to the next, there's different points of views, especially if you like, for example, just go on Twitter and every little thing that happens, everyone has a different take on. Um, so consistency is very important. And then to add to that discipline, discipline creates consistency. So having, having habit formations, having uh, self-efficacy, uh, being able to be responsible for yourself, uh, to take yourself seriously, but not too seriously. I always think like sincerity is that middle ground between, you know, hating yourself because everything's not the way you want it to be or, and, you know, doing as much as you can because you're trying to be a better person. So that's, there's like balance, right? Like there's these things with, our, especially with our emotions, we need to strike balances and those balances look different for different people. Right. Um, I can't tell you what your balance is or someone else balances it balance is because we're made up of different, uh, different energies. Right. And we have different 
perspectives because of not just our environment, but also uh, the way we're built, like the way we've, we've developed into the world. Some of us are more extroverted, some of us are more introverted, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? So specifically for me in my personal life, I I try to have you know as much of a uh, as physical experiences as possible with not just nature, but also working out, running, uh, trying to be physically active. Um, those are really important for mental health. Uh, and then also constantly trying to uh, better myself by challenging myself. So that's why I go on hikes or I rock climb um, or I try to, uh, you know, go kayaking, just putting myself in situations uh, where I can learn. I'm going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But it's like, okay, how do I stop repeating the same mistakes? It's always good to make new mistakes, but don't repeat the same mistakes. And that's something that I constantly reflect on. So meditation as an internal activity, as an internal physical activity, I practice meditation or I would do yoga or, right, you know, I, for example, uh, you know, I've done psychedelics in the past and psychedelics are very, very useful as a tool uh, to be able to understand oneself uh, from a more ob objective perspective or seeing yourself as a stranger. It's always nice to see um, how to, how you treat others or how you treat yourself uh, from a perspective that isn't the one that you constantly always have. Um, and that's something that you can cultivate. I think cultivating your essential life activities, right? The way you treat yourself internally and externally is very, very important for the person that you want to be. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's not taking a pill and then next day waking up and I'm superhuman, right? Like it's not, it's not how it works. It, it, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of sweat, a lot of crying to be able to be the person that you want to be or to be this person that I'm presenting to you right now. Yes, I resonate so much with what you shared. And I feel like there's so much glamorization of people trying to walk the path of becoming enlightened or becoming their best self. And oftentimes, like you said, it's a lot of sweat, a lot of tears, a lot of frustration, a lot of looking at yourself in the mirror and questioning, why am I doing this to myself? What it, why would I speak to myself in this way? Would I say these things to somebody else? And similar to you, I've also worked with psychedelics and entheogens. And I think how you summarize it so beautifully, the way in which we're able to shift our perspective and really look at the narrative that we're telling ourselves, that shift and that mindset change is what really generates the following months of integration to really creating a new way of being for yourself as you continue to become more and more, quote unquote, evolved and attaining these higher levels of consciousness. Yeah, that, and I'll just add a disclaimer to that. I'm not saying that if you, if anyone listening and they do psychedelics, that they're gonna, you know, they're gonna find this new way of seeing themselves, and then now they're gonna be different. And you know, after that moment, they're no longer gonna be the same. Uh, I would say having a framework, right? Where you were talking about integration, integ integration practices, and having an outlook, a framework, a worldview, right? in which to apply what you experience from the psychedelics is as important as the experience itself. Because if you don't have a way of interpreting a language or a portal, as they say, right? Like it's a portal to putting yourself from 
this point to the next point, that 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 transition is where the work of the practice of being disciplined and using the integration speaks volumes, right? Because if you if you're if you don't have anything and you're just kind of like doing it as a party drug or you know because of the visuals or the hallucinations you can get lost in that too and you may have just been like wow that was a great experience super cool i'm gonna let people know that like you see a lot of cool vibrant colors um and tracers uh but i learned nothing about myself that could happen <laughs> too right you learn nothing about how to actually become a better human being and that and that comes with the work right of the worldview and how you sculpt over time that worldview a hundred percent. And I mean, if you want to extrapolate that to something as simple as yoga, I remember when I first started my yoga journey, I was just showing up into this class. You know, I was an undergrad. I was, I wasn't even 20 and all of the women were several decades older than me. And at first you're just running through the motions and you're like, okay, I'm doing this. It must be good for me. I'm getting a good stretch. I need this flexibility. And I fast forward to over a decade of doing yoga and now teaching that to other people and all the principles that just came to me over time through consistency, through discipline, through showing up for myself, giving myself grace, you know, learning that when you fall out of a balance pose, it's not the end of the world. There's no reason to get upset. Just go with it, flow with it. Balance is a moving target. Like there's so many lessons that you learn. And as you continue to integrate those in your daily life, that's where you start seeing the culmination of those little baby steps flourish into something beautiful right so uh just to take it back to you know these these like discomforting emotions like econeurosis for example that's a sign right that's that's uh that's something that's letting you know it's a reaction to the way we're relating in the world with negative ramifications it's saying hey look like you know what, what do you call it when you uh uh when you have an alarm bell, right? Like these are alarm bells ringing in our heads, telling us like, pause, take a step back. How do we change what we're doing? Because what we're doing is creating these psychosomatic effects, right? That are telling us there's something wrong going on. There's something wrong, not just internally, but also externally. And these things are just moments, right? That tell us, we need to change. We need to do something different because we're practicing the same worldview and doubling down on it, thinking that we're going to get different effects. And that's not what's happening because it, we, it, the, the, the anxieties, the depressions, the helplessness, it keeps getting worse. It's not getting better. <laughs> yeah. And I see that all the time in the clinical world when people come in with this this productivity mindset, you know, these people work in investment banking, they work long hours, they're working 14, 16 hour days, their bodies have reached the point of exhaustion, they're living these very anxious, stressed out lives. And finally, their body tells them like, I cannot sustain myself this way anymore. This is not going to work. But it's not telling you that directly, obviously, because our body can't talk to us. But how does that show up? The weird numbness and tingling in the arm, the constant headaches, the irregular menstrual cycles, like there's all these symptoms that your body is yelling at you saying, like you said, these alarm bells, listen up, listen to me, this is not okay, help me, I'm helping you. And we just keep pushing through that because that's our productive society. That's the 
rat race mentality that we're kind of ingrained with from the time that we're young. Yeah. Uh, and it, the, the part that sucks a lot too, is that, you know, as we're growing up, we're not taught how to listen to these things. Like we don't, we're not taught how to listen to our bodies. And then I think that's a, that's a missed opportunity. You know, that's a, that's uh, that's something that I think if grade school could be changed, talking about structural changes, that's an example of thinking, okay, like let's let's think of like how we can uh, how we can include meditative practices into into our you know our integrate into grade school instead of just focusing so much on test taking. Because we're only worried about, like you said, right, productivity. We're worried about like, well, what what does intelligence look like? Oh yeah, it just it 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 it's looked at as how good can you take a test right? Not how good do you, do you act under struggle, right? And what are good worldviews and frameworks to help you in life so that you can overcome those struggles? I think that's a great way to teach. Uh, like, that's a great form of education. And that, and that kind of education will follow you for the rest of your life. That's so cool, because even after school, you're constantly experiencing struggle. You're constantly experiencing, uh, you know, tests, tests in life, right? Relationship tests, uh, you know, uh, career tests, financial tests, like all these, all kinds of tests, but they're not multiple choice and fill in the blank. They're, they're life decisions that you get to make that will follow you for the rest of your life, right? Which is, I think, much more impactful than just filling in the blank and, and filling up a, a bubble. A hundred percent. And, you know, I know we're both from Miami and we both took those FCAT exams, those Florida standardized tests, and they would just print out the scores and give you the number and the number determined your worth. And I remember even at one point, like the Florida school system was paying teachers a percentage of money based on how well students performed, which sounds like total insanity when you bring it back to what we're talking about now. Like how amazing would it have been if in college or high school, we would have had classes like how to save up for retirement, how to negotiate purchasing a home or a car, you know, how to invest in stocks and life skills that are actually beneficial to our path into adulthood. Yeah. And I think the cool thing is, is that that, that actually transcends ideological divides, um, especially in the world that we're living in now where like, you know, we're more polarized than ever, or at least that's the that's the way it's being framed that's the way it's being talked about and being reinforced especially through the media um and and also just different uh forms of research research within political science and i think what you just said resonates as much with democrats as it does with republicans which i think is very very interesting how there are points of commonality that we don't necessarily focus on all the time well, that just goes back to what we were saying about the greater collective consciousness and how, you know, in, in the small day to day, we think that we're so different from one another. But when you really strip away the titles, the socioeconomic status, the level of affluence, we're really all seeking the same basic human needs. Right. Right. And I, and I think it, it, the cool thing is, is that it resonates with everyone. Right. It's just not necessarily presented in a way where we can all digest it equally. I think that's the problem. Um, and that ha I think that has to do with what we've been talking about, which is like, we're, we feel more and more divided, more and more isolated. And this is why you're having, uh, especially in the United States, you're having levels of 
uh, increased levels of depression, increased levels of anxiety uh, in men and in women, uh, and then also like increased suicide rates. Uh, it's because we're 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 trying to substitute instant gratification, specifically with our technology, for these deep human forms that have been tested through time. Right? These aren't things that just appeared today. They have been things that have been happening collectively from the past that we've just forgotten. We're slowly starting to discover them again, but they've always been there, especially in indigenous communities. Like they've existed. And I'm not trying to romanticize indigeneity. There's obviously problems, just like there's problems and everything. Like life is complex, but there are specific principles that we can take in specific moments, in specific parts of human development that we can see like, hey, this worked. Like, this is a thing that we all crave. This is a thing that we all need. And human connection and community is one of them, just as an example, right? Okay, you know that I love talking about indigeneity. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Because that is so profound and so beautiful and definitely a trending topic nowadays. Well, I mean, I have... I'm very careful about indigeneity just because I'm not an indigenous person and I don't want to speak for indigenous people. Uh, but indigenous people, for example, uh, and I'm speaking here generally, so I'm not necessarily focusing on specific tribe, but in general, in, indigenous people didn't have a, div a divide with nature and culture. It was all one process, one happening, um, and they didn't even have categories for how to talk about nature and human culture as two separate things. Um, you know, the development of human history throughout the West, uh, especially after the 1500s, we created these categories. We tried to divide the world between civilized and uncivilized, right? And we put the people who don't necessarily share the same values as we do as those who don't hold any value. Um, and over time, the idea of nature as this lifeless, passive object that we can just procure so that we can keep reproducing our own form of society that only looks at things from a, from a linear point of view through progress is a Western creation. It's an illusion we've bought into. Um, and, and that also has incredible ramifications, right? There, there, there was violence committed, there was colonization, uh, there was extraction, there was theft that happened collectively uh, from, one, uh, from one culture to another uh, by the West believing that we were somehow better uh, than something else. And these things didn't deserve the same form of value that we give ourselves, right? And we began to other nature. We began to other indigenous people. We began to other black. We began to uh, to other uh, marginalized people who don't necessarily share the same values as we do. Who don't look the same as we do. Uh, and that became an unquestioned assumption until until now. The West is finally starting to, especially in academic circles, is starting to question this idea of this dividing line that we created at one point in life and we all just ran with it, which I, to me is kind of ridiculous if you really think of it. Yeah, and 
you summarized that so beautifully the the way that you described it the whole mini history there it's it's so true and like you said so many of us are starting to wake up and realize that it's so important to question these ideas that are being taught to us since the time we're young and the narrative that we're being told may not be the only narrative you know that saying there's three sides to every story one person's side the other person's side and then there's the truth but just going back to what you said about how the native culture just has this beautiful connection with land and nature there is no separation i think that so much of what we're seeing today relating back to your studies with eco-neurosis and eco-anxiety comes from that separation and that disconnection that we have with nature. Right. And uh, that's, I, 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 in my research, I, I'm making the point to say that it's that story, that felt separation that we've abstracted over time and made it into an actual physical process because now we're we we're tailoring and fashioning society with that mindset with that idea of nature's out there culture is in here and because of that we now have what we understand as climate change climate crisis there's you know climate scientists who are talking about the anthropocene um this development now is because of how real this very made up idea came into the world and is now wreaking havoc right it's wreaking havoc on the planet itself it's changing the geoformation of what the planet has done in the past um and that's pretty that's pretty alarming that's scary and it may it, it goes to show like the capacity of what human human thought when it's collectively believed and unquestioned can do as a consequence of what we're believing in ourselves. So when people say like, oh yeah, like it's just ideas floating in your head, like those ideas floating in your head, if enough people believe it can have catastrophic effects if they're not for the purpose of creating connection, but for the, for the purpose of dividing, right? For the perfect of, of, of instrumentalizing something. To dehumanize something, right, means to to take away uh, the life that it once had because you now believe that it doesn't have life. And that's kind of like how we've been orienting ourselves within Western society for a very long time. Yeah, and I think that's why there's such a big shift now of people who are dropping out of these corporate jobs and seeking deeper meaning, deeper purpose seeking ways that they can do something with intention, with goodness at the heart of it, and still find a way to sustain the kind of life that they want to live. Because we've been so focused on industrialization and exploitation of these resources, which were never ours to take, because they belong to the land and they belong to nature. And if we really realize that we have a totally mutualistic relationship with it, we would realize that as we've gone exploiting mother nature, she's starting to scream back at us the same way that if she was our body, as like we were talking about before, our bodies are giving us those alarm signals and yelling at us. Mm -hmm. You know, every time we turn on the news, we see all these natural disasters, the hurricane that just wreaked havoc on Florida. And every year they're just more and more prevalent. 
So this is the way of the world waking up and saying, I cannot take this anymore. This exploitation of my resources is no longer sustainable. You guys have to change the way you're thinking collectively. Yeah, and, and you can tell that, you know, everyday people resonate towards, you know, wanting to cause less suffering. I think most people have an intention of, yeah, how do I cause less suffering for more people? But most people don't necessarily know how to do that, right? And I think the problem or like, things get a little more muddy when we start to look at the solutions, right? Because, for example, corporations, they know that people's intention is to want to do good. So they use that intentionality as a way to create more profit margins. Yes. So green, greenwashing is an example of using that good intention of wanting to save the earth to increase corporate profits, to make it seem like you're actually helping the earth when all you're really doing is just buying into a product, right? Uh, and that's that's the problem is like we, we keep using the same tools that are creating the fire by trying to put out the fire. Um, and it's it doesn't help. Like those are the, you know, those are the things we have to be constantly cautious of. We have to be wary. We almost have to be, uh, you know, walking on eggshells when corporations are telling us like, hey, we can solve this problem really easy if you just buy this product. <laughs> and it, go, it goes back to that instant gratification thing that we were talking about, which people want to feel good without putting any work in, <laughs> right? And corporations take advantage of that every day. And that's something we have to, you know, fight back against. You should, it's, it's almost like you should tell corporations like, no, 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 no. Show me the transparency and show me how hard it is to work at this so that we can actually solve the problem. All right. And I think creating that transparency and just creating that level of trust with consumers is what's leading that trend now where people are supporting small markets, small businesses, local friends, farmers, families, because we're starting to realize that the majority of these corporations don't have our best interests at heart. They really are just seeking higher profit margins. And, and, and right, that goes back to the, uh, the structural foundation of, of what is good in society, right? Like our society claims that what is good is infinite growth and infinite profit, right? Like that's what we constantly have to be doing. We, our quarterlies always have to be more than the quarterly we had the last time we 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 brought out our profits, right? That's 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 the goal, right? Like that is what gets rewarded in our society, and not something else. And and I feel like that's something that we should maybe start to to question. We should start to interrogate that. Uh, we should be a little more cautious that maybe what we should do is restructure our society to not think that just increase profits. It's what creates success success would maybe be seen as like this mutualism living with the earth and, and at the same time uh helping ourselves to not just reproduce our society but also reproduce everything else increase life that could be the aim of society if we wanted to collectively and that is so beautiful and would totally change the way that we perceive our everyday life because if you look and you take those concepts you were just talking about and you bring them down to an individual level, the idea that we always need more money to be happier, it's not true. 
And you see this, like, as for example, I live in New York City, I get on the subway, there's people in suits, they're hedge fund workers, they're investment bankers, they're probably making over half a million dollars a year. And yet their soul looks like it's been sucked out of them and they look miserable. And I truly believe that there is a fine line where once you've made a certain amount of money, your happiness is no longer correlated to that in the same proportion. Because all we really need are basic needs, people who love us. And that's pretty much it. Having a community of people that you can count on and good food on the table, things like that. But we've created this culture of keeping up with the Joneses, of superficiality, of so much abundance. You know, why do you need 100 pairs of shoes in your closet if you can only wear one pair at a time? Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good example. That's that's right. Um, and I think that starts, to be honest, with the new generation. Like when I teach classes, I look at the new generation and I'm like, well, you all have the makings, right? The potential uh, to be able to create a new imaginary or to at least move the Overton window, right, of what's possible to what isn't even being talked about right now. Which I, you know, that's. Can't hang your hat on that, but that's at least uh, a positive spin that you can see uh, that also the new generation is open to as well. Like they're they're open to seeing, hey, what's out there that we haven't tried that maybe we should try. Like that, that, that right then and there is already a good step in the right direction. It's not enough because things are really dire. <laughs> things are really, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Things are really, really bad. But it also means we got to work that much harder, right? Like, you know, going back to the struggle, find peace, find meaning in that struggle because life is struggle. And the more we tell that to ourselves, the more we, we, you know, we, we bring that out into society and we make it normal and we normalize that. I think the better off we'll be in the long run, if the long run even exists, right? Because <laughs> the, the doom of climate change is there. Econeurosis isn't lying to us. It's there for a reason. Absolutely. And I think just being able to, for example, sit here and have this conversation is an example of that privilege of us being able to sit here and discuss these concepts and these ideas and what possible solutions can we have to improve the trajectory of where we're headed. Whereas when you compare that to our parents, for example, you know, we're, uh, we come from immigrant families. You yourself actually immigrated over from Cuba. You're so stuck in that survival mindset that our parents and our grandparents weren't able to sit down and talk about how can they change the future and change the world because they were so busy worrying about making sure we had enough food on the table and a roof over our heads. Exactly. So it kind of ties back to like that Maslow's hierarchy of needs where like, they were fulfilling their basic requirements. Then they were working on self-love. And like, we are at that position of privilege where we can now sit and work on self-actualization. Like, how can we be our best selves so that we can really change the world? Yeah. And I, and I think just to, to add to the Maslow's idea is that the, the problem with Maslow was that he didn't have community in mind. It was a very individualistic orientation of what human needs are. And what we need to add there is like, okay, what does self-actualization look like at a community level, right? Yes. What does that look like at a collective societal level? Um, and, and, you know, see, that's, that's, that's where, uh, you know, the finitude of Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, which is great individually, needs that extra step of including collectivity 
And just to expand that even more, how do, how does nature, right? How does nature get included into that? How do we talk about human relationships with nature if we're talking about a collective point of view of who we are as people? Because what we should do is expand the eye of what it means to be an individual all the way to the magnitude level, right, of the planet. I should be seen as myself needs to reflect itself in the largest events that are happening ecosystemically in the planet, right? Like that's how we need to be looking at things, not just from a very like myopic. And I'm telling you, it's it's a it's it's a constant struggle because the society we live in is just seeped in and embedded with individualistic points of views. Um, which, for example, just as the example of Maslow, like we think of that and we forget to include nature, we forget to include the collectivity of, of our communities. And that's just something we have to, it's almost like we have to struggle against that constantly. And it takes a lot of work. I mean, some people, you know, it also depends on your your, your mental state and how you're feeling that day, <laughs> right? Not every, you're not every day going to feel like, yeah, I can take on the world some days. You're gonna need to, you know, like lean on others and 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 have that support system to help you when you can't deal with yourself, and especially not even being able to deal with the collectivity of the world or, or the planet, right? Like that's also the problem too. That's so true, and I totally resonate with that because I am very introverted. So some days I wake up and I am ready to chat, and other days I am like, please leave me in my little hermit shell. I am not ready to face the world today. Yeah. So what words of advice or what strategies can you share with listeners that they can implement in their daily lives to kind of create this community, create this collective consciousness and really help mitigate the eco-anxiety and the eco-neuroses that we're seeing? Yeah, oh, that's a toughie. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, inclusivity is very very important not thinking that or getting away from this idea that your life is solely your own and you don't have impacts on others we should start to rearrange that or, or reframe that to say no, no no every little moment of my life even as insignificant as looking at a youtube video for example or like, or like clicking on an app that reverberates kind of like what we're talking about, it reverberates at more deeper interconnected levels of what it means to be a human being. And what we need to be doing is ch changing the way we think about our impacts on the world and how we impact other people and maybe practicing mindfulness, right? Not just the act of meditation, but also mindfulness in the sense of like, am I impacting others in a way where I can be proud of myself? Like asking yourself questions like that right? Including others in your activity, right? Not excluding, right? Creating connections, uh, providing activities of engagement that include other people uh, that make you feel like you're doing, uh, you're doing an act that's helping others, that's selfless. Um, even if people want to have a debate where they're like, oh yeah, I know, like when I, I feel happy helping other people, great you feel happy you're you're helping yourself to help others that's awesome um those are the those are the kinds of things that we should be doing we should we should start forcing ourselves to think of the community as not something that just frivolously is frivolously exists 
but as something that's like vital, right? To our way we communicate with the world, our way we communicate with ourselves. It's an extension of our bodies. Like our community is an extension of who we are. Um, and we need to treat people as we want to be treated, right? I know these are all, this is, none of this is new. This is all, you know, you can see some of it in the Bible. You can see it in religious, uh, you know, in scripture, but all these things are, are tried and true. Like they're, they're, it's just how do you implement these things in a way that creates connection? I think that's the most important thing. How much are you connecting with the world? Because of how, because how much you connect with the world also shows how much you're connecting with yourself. And, and we need to like individuate at, at much higher and higher levels that we haven't been doing in the past. Cool. So basically really looking for ways to create community within our day-to-day -day activities and also really looking within and creating that mindfulness and moving with that grace when we interact with others of, would I say this to myself or how would I feel if somebody said that to me? And really being cognizant of the way that our actions or our words create a ripple effect as we continue with our lives. Definitely, definitely. And I think one of the things that we get kind of mad at or annoyed at is like when people feel or when you feel like you're being inconvenienced by someone, that moment of inconvenience could be a moment of connection. You just have to reorient the way you think about the moment, right? Because if you're if you're only seeing it from your I individual point of view where I need to go from this place to that place because that's how I go about my everyday natural default setting point of view, then yeah, you're going to be annoyed most of the time. But if you see these little moments as, as moments of connection, right? As moments of, okay, like here's an opportunity where I can learn more about this other person. They're not just an object in my way. Uh, that That's a complete reorientation, a complete 180 of how you can interact and engage with the world, which provides more color, more meaning, right? So beautiful. And that, you know, it's one of those things, like you said, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're not saying anything that hasn't been said before, but literally just shifting your perspective and changing the way that you see things. Like, instead of, oh my God, this old lady's in my way and she needs to cross the road. How beautiful would that be if we could say, you know what, let me make this woman stay and assist her so she safely gets to the other side. And what does that take you? An extra two minutes. And that woman will go home and tell all of her friends who live in her building and call all of her friends that she talks to and say, the most wonderful man helped me cross <laughs> the street today. And it was so nice yeah. because they feel like you cared. You saw them. You listened to them. And that's so important. Yeah. And people, people want to feel like they matter. Yes. I know that that's, you know, that that's something that we take for granted and it's just kind of like uh something that doesn't feel like it's that important but just making someone's day one with one little act of kindness goes a long way and it can literally change the way they see the world because right now what we have you know overabundance of is people who are pessimistic jaded and have lost complete hope in life and society And I think what we need to do is work on this idea that maybe just bringing in a little bit of hope, bringing in a little bit of brightness in life and into yourself, that that means something. I know that it's not, you know, it's not like a superhero life-changing ability, but it, I think uh, I don't, for, for a long-term effect, if everyone does that, 
you'll definitely see some difference um, that's tangible, tangible and also profound as well within our society. That is so beautiful. Thank you so much for taking your time to share your vision with me and talk about your studies with me. It was such an honor to have you on here. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you inviting me. Uh, and just to let people know, like from what we've been talking about, there are people out there that care, right? And we, we're people that care. Obviously, you can see it in the way we're talking about life. Um, and don't lose hope because losing hope only exacerbates and confirms the status quo. It doesn't actually change anything. So that's something that we always got to keep in mind. Say, so, hey, we got to do our little parts even if they're little, it, they do matter, especially at a local level. Absolutely. And that's so inspiring. Where can people connect with you if they wanted to get in touch or talk more about this with you? Yeah. So folks can follow me on Twitter. Uh, the at is Rudy's Dialectics uh, with an S at the end. Uh, they can also just uh, find me on my website, I'm sorry, not my website, uh, on uh, on the Colorado State uh, Political Science uh, Department. Uh, you can see my bio there, and then you can also see my uh, uh, the different uh, reviews that I've had so far within my own work. And then eventually I'll have published uh, dissertation chapters so that I can uh, bring that over to you as well. That's so awesome. Thank you again for your time, and we'll chat soon. Thank you. Thank you.